everyone. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today we have a special bonus episode from the Grunge series about Stone Temple Pilots. Now listen, some of you guys might not agree that Stone Temple Pilots belong in the Grunge category, but let me just say this, okay? I think that they do belong. Their first two albums sounded very Grunge-inspired, even at the time when Grunge wasn't really a word being thrown around. All of them were considered alternative rock, and Stone Temple Pilots is very alternative rock. And Scott Weiland's voice is very comparable when talking about Elaine Staley, Kurt Cobain, Eddie Vedder, and Chris Cornell. They're all grouped together as some of the most amazing rock vocalists of all time. So that's my piece on why I'm putting them here in the grunge category. If you don't agree, then you just gotta lump it, because you know what? That's just what we're doing today. You know, hopefully you can just look past that and just simply enjoy this podcast episode for what it is, and hopefully learn some information that you didn't know about before. So, all of that aside, to just get talking about Stone Temple Pilots, there isn't really a whole lot about Scott Weiland's backstory that I could really research. I know that he has a autobiography. I just, I'm not really into books and I can't really, I'm not the best reader, so I didn't really have the time to read his autobiography. I wouldn't even have been able to finish it in a week. There's no way. But from what I could research and what I could manage to find up, I found a couple of things just to kind of go back and talk about Scott Weiland before we really dive deep into Stone Temple Pilots and before they were named Stone Temple Pilots. So without further ado, let's get started with our front man, Scott Weiland. Scott was born October 27, 1967 in San Jose, California. His parents were Sharon and Kenny Klein. They divorced when he was only two, so very, very young. At age five, his stepfather, David Weiland, legally adopted him, and Scott took on his last name. Around this time, the family moves to Bainbridge, Ohio, and as a teen, he moved back to California and attended Edison High School in Huntington Beach and Orange Coast College. And I do know that he was um, a football player when he was in high school. Um, He was very prolific, actually, as a football player. Before his music career even began, and before he even really considered a career in music, he worked as a paste-up artist for the Los Angeles Daily Journal, which was a legal newspaper at the time. There's actually two different stories of how Scott Weiland met bassist Robert DeLeo. There are two varying stories. So the first story is that Scott and Robert met at a Black Flag concert in Long Beach, California in 1985. They got to talking, and they eventually landed on the topic of their girlfriends. Like, oh yeah, I'm dating this chick. And so they realized they were dating the same girl. What are the odds of that? And so, instead of letting it get to them, though, and letting it get between them, they became friends, and they formed a band after breaking up with the girl. If you want to believe that story, that's the first story. The second story is a lot less um, interesting than the first one. So basically, Scott wrote in his autobiography that he and his bandmates of their band Soy Dissonant went after Robert to be in their band after watching him play at different shows. So after some time in the band Soy Dissonant, there was Scott Weiland, there was guitarist Corey Hycock, and there was drummer David Allen, and then they recruited Robert to be in there. David left the band to pursue other interests, and so the other three members saw drummer Eric Kretz 
play in Long Beach and convinced him to join their band. And then Corey eventually too left the band in 1989. So looking for another guitarist, Robert suggested his brother Dean. At this point, the guys were calling themselves Swing. But Dean really wasn't into that name. He was like, listen, I will join you guys, but I'm not joining this band if you're going to name yourself Swing, because that is dumb. <laughs> so, so they changed their name to Mighty Joe Young. And they were not Swing anymore. <laughs> they recorded a demo tape in 1990, and some of the songs on this demo tape would go on to be on their first debut album, Core, as well as some other musical styles on this demo tape that wouldn't really be featured on any of their other albums in the future, like Swing Style and, get this, Yodeling. Yodeling! I want to listen to these demo tapes. Who the hell was yodeling on this? Like, what was that all about? That's so weird. So, as Mighty Joe Young, they played their first show as the opening act for Henry Rollins at the Whiskey A Go-Go. They then started to record their first debut album with Brendan O'Brien, and that name might sound familiar, if you've listened to my Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam episodes, Brendan O'Brien is a very famous music producer. And so during these recordings, they received a call actually that the name Mighty Joe Young had already been taken by a bluesman who claimed that name. So this is where they had to change their name. And so they were thinking about it. They were like, all right, what are we going to change our name to? They were all kind of inspired by the stickers for STP Motor Oil. They kind of just remembered that STP sticker and they were like, oh yeah, I quite like that design and I like the concept of that. And so they were trying to think of like what the initials could stand for. And so they came up with Stone Temple Pilots. Anyway, so now we're getting on to their debut album as Stone Temple Pilots. And we all know this album. It's called Core. So in 1992, the band signed with Atlantic Records. I don't know why I said it like that. Atlantic Records. And Core was released on September 29th, 1992, and it peaked at number three on the Billboard album charts. Singles for Core are Sex Type Thing, Plush, Creep, and Wicked Garden, which are all amazing tunes. I know we all know these tunes. Their success was also heavily in part to MTV playing their music videos for Sex Type Thing and Plush on daily rotation. The album Core was a truly major success. It was it was extremely popular. I believe Core is actually considered their most successful album of all time. But weirdly enough, they were heavily criticized by the music press for just being grunge imitations. They were being heavily compared to Pearl Jam, that Eddie Vedder sounded just like Scott Weiland, which I personally don't agree with. I don't hear... Eddie Vedder when I hear Scott Weiland. They're two different entities in itself. And they were not grunge imitations. They were, I would consider them the real deal. They were doing something different. And what was weird too is like at the time when Cora came out, a lot of hit TV shows like SNL and Beavis and Butthead had their moments of making fun of the band for this reason. And it's just like so stupid how people were just saying that, oh, you guys are just grunge ripoffs, you know. And you're not even from Seattle, which, listen, I made my piece in the beginning of why I'm putting them in the grunge category, and some of you might not agree, but I think they do belong here for the reasons I said at the beginning. Scott Weiland even said himself, okay, first of all, Scott was not happy with these criticisms at all. He was not happy that he was just being chalked up to being an Eddie Vedder sound-alike. It's not even true. 
Scout went on to say that him and the band, they all admired and loved those grunge bands. They all loved them. They're amazing. And he also said that they might sound similar in some ways because all those bands have very similar musical influences, which is true. Like, like Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots were cool about like Led Zeppelin or um, Black Sabbath or, you know, Jimi Hendrix or this, that and the other. And it's the same with all of them. They all had the same musical influences that they drew from for inspiration. And so that's why they all kind of sound the same and they have that similar grungy alternative rock feel about them. It's not fair for these music publications and these musical critics to say that. Like, they have no business saying that at all because it's not even true. The fans, on the other hand, were loving the band. They were, like, so enthused with the band. But the music critics, man, they just took the wrong side of this one. They were on the wrong side of history. One little controversy, though, that came from this album in particular was the criticism for their song sex type thing, which fans and critics argued that it's a pro-rape song. In a similar vein to Nirvana, when they put up the song Rape Me, people were like, oh my god, it's a pro-rape song. And Kurt was like, it's not a pro-rape song, you idiots. <laughs> you know, so people hear something like that and they're like, oh my god, he's pro-rape, which is not true at all. Scott said that sex type thing was actually about men's abuse of power and how they treat women. So it's pointing out these criticisms and it's pointing out these things in society. It's not saying pro-rape at all. So at this time, Scott and Dean played an acoustic version of Plush for the MTV show The Headbangers Ball. And this is considered one of Scott's best vocal performances ever. But so despite negative reviews, like horrifically negative reviews, from the music critics, the album continued to gain major momentum and popularity because guess what? The fans were on board with this album. They continued to gain a lot of fans with touring because they opened for Rage Against the Machine and Megadeth. These music critics are just schmucks, in my opinion. They don't know what they're talking about. They still don't really know what they're talking about, in my opinion. Anyway, in 1993, Stone Temple Pilots were featured on MTV Unplugged. And this is where... They played some songs, obviously from Core, and they also debuted the song Big Empty. Stone Temple Pilots were voted Best New Band by Rolling Stones magazine's Readers in January 1994, and simultaneously, they were voted Worst New Band by the music critics. So it was just a 50-50 split. If you were a normal person, you liked Stone Temple Pilots for the most part. If you were a music critic... You fucking hated them. So there was no in-between. It was either you love them or you hate them. But a lot of that was really unfounded, in my opinion, and it wasn't fair. In February of 1994, Stone Temple Pilots won Favorite Pop Rock New Artist and Heavy Metal Hard Rock New Artist at the American Music Awards. And in 1994, in March, they won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance for the song Plush. So they're doing something right. If they're winning these awards... Okay, so now we're moving on to their second album, Purple. In spring 1994, the band went back into the studio to record Purple. And it was completed, actually, in less than a month. But so Purple was released on June 7th, 1994, and it debuted at number one in the U.S. Interstate Love Song became a big hit on the radio, spending 15 weeks on the album rock charts. Other hit songs from Purple were Vaseline and Big Empty. 
and Big Empty was actually featured on the movie The Crow. And so by October of 1994, Purple had sold 3 million copies. And so also in 1994, on September 17th, Scott marries his longtime girlfriend, Janina Castaneda. She was the inspiration, actually, for a few Stone Temple Pilots songs, notably Still Remains and Loungefly. So now we're getting into the phase where they come out with Tiny Music, Number 4, and Shangri-La Dida. So in May of 1995, Scott was heavily into his drug addictions by this point in time. Um, it's been said that his addictions kind of really took off around the core era. Most notably, cocaine and heroin were his drugs of choice. It was just becoming really, really bad because he was at this point now being arrested for drug possessions. And these arrests were becoming public. So the public was being made aware that Scott had these extreme drug problems. At this point in time, he faced arrest for getting busted with heroin and cocaine, like I mentioned. He was able to actually ward off prison time by entering an agreement to go into rehab at this time, which he completed. In October of that year, the band regrouped to record their third album, Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop. They actually rented out a mansion in Santa Barbara for the band to live together for these recording sessions, which is just... Woo, like that's how you spend your money? Yeah, you do that. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. So Tiny Music was released on March 5th, 1995. The sound of this album is most notably different compared to the previous two albums. It signaled more of like a glam rock and psychedelic tone, more so than a hard rock or grunge sound that made them famous. Funny enough, the critics loved this album because it sounded kind of different from what they had come out with, so whatever, you can't please everybody, right? Unfortunately, the tours for Tiny Music were only kind of moderately successful. They pulled out as the support slot for Kiss's reunion tour. However, Alice in Chains actually filled in for them on these tours, which is quite interesting. So on their 96-97 North American tour, though, they had to cancel some of these shows towards the end due to Scott's prolific drug addiction. He was, at this point, convicted again with cocaine possession. Scott went into rehab again, so this is kind of the start of the end for him, in a way. But so during Scott's time away from the public scene and doing his own thing and, you know, going to rehab and all this stuff, and the band taking kind of a break with not touring at this time, the rest of the band recruited singer Dave Coots, who was the frontman for the band Ten Inch Men. And so this lineup went under the name Talk Show. And so as Talk Show, together they released one album, it's a self-titled album, in 1997 before this formation of Stone Temple Pilots would split up. So while Stone Temple Pilots was kind of doing that album, Scott went on to pursue his own musical interests, and he released his first solo album called Ten Bar Blues in 1998. So both the talk show album and Scott's first solo album, they received positive reviews, but they didn't really achieve big commercial success. In late 1998, Stone Temple Pilots came back together to release their fourth album called Number Four, which it's kind of funny, like, yeah, what should we name our fourth album? Hmm, Number Four. <laughs> I think that's really, really funny. So Number Four was more in vain to the sound of Core and Purple, getting back to their more original sound. And so again, while Number Four is being put out and it's being released, it's just a whole freaking thing that Scott is again going through a lot with drugs. So 
On July 7, 1999, on Ringo Starr's birthday, nonetheless, Scott was actually hospitalized due to a drug overdose. He could have died at this time, actually. It was that bad. And so, due to his two previous drug convictions and now this hospitalization, these were considered a violation of his probation, and he therefore had to be sent to prison. So, he was sent to prison. He was sentenced to a year, but he only served four months. And he was then, again, sent to rehab in December. In a quote from Scott in 2000 with Rolling Stone, he had to say this about his time in prison. I felt I was achieving something after I had been there a month and a half. They said that in order for sobriety to work, you have to surrender. It happened over a period of time, being locked down, dealing with fear of the unknown. But once I surrendered, stopped trying to control everything, I started getting peace of mind. So while this was all going on and in the midst of it all, their album number four was released on October 26, 1999. Their biggest hit actually from this album since the success of Core and Purple was their song Sour Girl, alongside the music video for it that featured actress Sarah Michelle Gellar from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And this album would later go on to be certified platinum. And actually what's quite interesting is that Sour Girl was in part written about Scott's failed marriage with his wife Janina. But he wastes no time. In May 2000, Scott marries for the second time to model Mary Forsberg. They had a son, Noah, that was born November 2000, and a daughter, Lucy, born July 2002. On June 19, 2001, the band went on to release their fifth album, Shangri-La-Di-Da. This album only went on to produce one radio hit named Days of the Week. I think it was not really that well received. It was kind of considered a flop. To promote the album, they went on tour with Linkin Park and Godsmack for their Family Values tour, but this didn't really do a whole lot for them anyway because the album just wasn't really their best work at all. And so because of this huge flop, the marketing support from their record label was minimal at best. And so the band just decided, all right, let's just not make albums for a little while now. Let's just kind of regroup, chill for a moment, which I think was the best decision that they ever did. So on November 20th, 2001, while the band was playing at a show at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Scott was arrested again, but this time not for drugs. He was arrested on domestic violence charges following an incident where Scott reportedly pushed his wife Mary into a wall in their hotel room during a fight about prescription pills. Yeah, it's well documented not only in his autobiography, but she also came out with an autobiography talking about her marriage with Scott, that he was apparently physically abusive towards her. So this is just one of those instances where he was actually arrested for it. He spent 12 hours in jail. Um, so after he posted Bond, he returned to the stage later that night to perform, kind of like nothing really happened. The following month in December, on the 19th, he pleaded guilty to these domestic battery charges. And so, in exchange for his guilty plea, he was fined and sentenced to six months probation and was directed to take 26 counseling sessions with Mary. It didn't really do a whole lot because him and Mary were to split sometime later. By 2002, the band kind of went radio silent despite rumors that they were working on a new album, but the record label decided to put out a compilation album instead of the band's best hits, and this was called Thank You in 2003. So after the release of the compilation album, 
the DeLeo brothers just announced that the ban was done, that there was kind of no more to be said about that. There wasn't an official announcement. It was just kind of a, yeah, Stone Temple Pilots is done at this point. Scott joins the rock supergroup Velvet Revolver, which featured Guns N' Roses members Slash, Matt Sorum, and Duff McKagan, and the Wasted Youth guitarist Dave Kushner. There was actually an extremely interesting VH1 documentary that came out that followed the three members, actually four, really, the four members kind of looking for a singer because this was after, at some point, after the breakup of Guns N' Roses, and Slash and Matt and Duff wanted to create another musical project. And so they paired up with Dave Kushner, and the four of them were looking for a singer. And so kind of how it went down was they put out an ad in the newspapers looking for a singer. They gave out an address for anyone to send in demo tapes. And apparently they went through like 200 demo tapes in a week, something like that. It was some crazy number. And there were a few chances where they had singers that they really liked and they came to the band, they practiced with the band, and it just never really panned out. After nine months of looking for a singer, the tensions within these four guys were just so monumental and it was just kind of it was just a lot. It was just like some people were chill about it. Like, hey, whatever. If it takes time, it takes time. Some people were like, it's been nine months. I just want to get going. Like, what's going on here? And so they catch word that Scott was, um, quote unquote, kind of like on hiatus with Stone Temple Pilots. Because again, like they didn't necessarily put out an official breakup statement. So they hear that Scott is available and they ask Scott to come and audition for them. They had one audition, Scott was really good. And so then after that audition point, they were really keen on having Scott in the band. So they were practicing more and more with him in the future. But Scott would just show up late or be a no-show for a lot of these auditions and a lot of these rehearsals for um, songs that they were starting to put together. And it was not reflecting well on the rest of the band that Scott was just not showing up. And it's obvious Scott was not showing up because of his drug addictions. Because during this time, Scott actually was arrested again for drug possession. He was the passenger in a car with a 29-year-old woman, apparently. And he was caught with drug paraphernalia in the car. He goes to jail. He goes to rehab. And while he's at this really dark point in his life... He has a phone call with Slash and he has a conversation with Duff McKagan because it's very well known that Slash and Duff had extremely bad experiences with drug addiction as well. It's well known that Duff and Slash got clean, but it's very well known that Duff got clean from the help of martial arts. And so, you know, Duff was like, all right, I'll hook you up with my guy or with people that would be good for you because Scott was extremely... He was feeling defeated because he knew he had an issue. He knew he had this drug addiction and it was extremely crippling for him and he couldn't figure out why rehab was just not sticking with him. He knew that he had this strong attraction towards drugs. He really seriously wanted help and so he figured that, well, if Duff got clean on martial arts, that I could do the same. And so he was at a rehab facility in Washington, which is away from everything. Washington is beautiful. It's just a lot of greenery, a lot of mountains. It's so nice. 
Scott practices martial arts and yoga, and it seems very beneficial for him. It seems like it helped him at least for some part. So that's good. So after Scott came back from his stint in rehab, Velvet Revolver came together and they put out some new material. And so they came out with two albums, their first one called Contraband in 2004, and their second one, Libertad, in 2007. Their Contraband album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, and it went platinum in three months. So it was a major hit. The two big hits from the album were Slither and Fall to Pieces. Fall to Pieces was actually written primarily about Scott's drug use at the time of recording the album. The band wanted to portray what was really going on inside of the band, and Scott said that the band helped him come out of his hell period. So Fall to Pieces is kind of a autobiographical song in a way, if you kind of want to put it like that. And then during their second album, Libertad, Scott's brother Michael actually passed away due to his own drug addictions. So the songs For a Brother and Pills, Demons, etc. on that album were written as a tribute to his brother Michael. And some attribute Michael's death to Scott's kind of increasing depression and drug addiction, falling more into the rabbit hole. Some saying that he never really got over his brother's death. And it's just another thing to pile on top of Scott's life. Actually, on his 36th birthday on October 27th, 2003, he was taken in by the LA police after his BMW struck a parked van. So he was arrested, obviously for driving under the influence, but he was released on bail later that day. But he was arrested for another DUI in November of 2007. And then in April of 2008, the members of Velvet Revolver just had enough. It was just more and more and more. Scott's drug problems were omnipresent and the band really thought that they could help him, but it just became kind of too much. Velvet Revolver disbanded forever. Simultaneously, while Scott was in Velvet Revolver, the DeLeo brothers also formed a music group called Army of Anyone with singer Richard Patrick of the band Filter and drummer Ray Lutzier. They released their self-titled album in 2006 before going on an infinite hiatus in 2007. At this point now, we're coming to some kind of a reunion. So Scott's wife, Mary Forsberg, she reached out to the DeLeo brothers and asked them if they would play at a private beach party that they were having. This was kind of their first step at a reconciliation and a reunion with Scott and the DeLeo brothers. And so they kind of came back together eventually. And so after the split from Velvet Revolver, Stone Temple Pilots were back. And they announced a huge 75-date North American tour. They were like, yep, we're back all the way, like all or nothing. They actually officially reunited for a private concert at the Houdini Mansion. And they held their first public appearance since their split on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. So after their touring, the band took a short break to allow Scott to promote the release of his second solo album. And so after this, you know, touring and stuff and promoting Scott's second album, they then went back all together into the studio to record their comeback album. So the release of their comeback album, which is just self-titled, named Stone Temple Pilots, was released on May 25th in 2010 and it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200. So again, it was a huge success. It wouldn't really last for too long. I mentioned briefly that Scott has an autobiography. It was released in May of 2011, and his autobiography is called Not Dead and Not For Sale, a memoir. In the autobiography, he kind of tells his life story and about his life in the music industry with really compelling, brutal honesty. 
and really sad stories about his past. At the age of 12, he was sexually assaulted. He kind of blocked it out of his memory until he said, I believe, when he was 30. It was a repressed memory, but it came back to the surface. And it only came back when he went to therapy and he, you know, was dealing with that. And so just things like that he came out with and he talked about in very candid detail. A really important quote that I kind of wanted to include from, well, actually two that I found that I wanted to mention here because I thought they were kind of interesting. One quote that he says in the preface of the book is, I've relived pains as well as the highest of highs. I felt deflated and elated to dig through the cobwebs to explore the whys and the why nots. So he was really very reflective and looking into why am I so prone to drug addiction? Why do these things happen to me? And he looks inwards and he asks, like, why am I this way? I didn't mention that he has bipolar disorder. So he does have that mental illness and he was taking medication for that. He goes into detail about all those things in his life. And one part of his memoir where he talks about his substance abuse that I thought was just a really interesting quote that I wanted to share was, no one turns you into a drug addict or drunk. The blame game is pointless and harmful. I don't believe in pointing fingers. We do what we do and are responsible for our own actions. I don't believe we are victimized by circumstance. There are, however, stories to be told. The story does not begin with us, but rather our parents and our parents' parents. The story goes back further than we know or can even imagine. Our stories are linked together because we share this space on the planet. We influence one another, whether we like it or not. After he put out his memoir, after this point in December of 2011, Dean DeLeo expressed interest in wanting to do more kind of intimate concerts and shows around the U.S. He also commented on there being an extended release of CORE with more live archival material. And so the following year in December, Scott also commented on the 20th anniversary of CORE. He commented on the expansion of the album. Again, kind of what Dean said with a lot more archived material and coming out with like a coffee table book and then a new album and then a tour and all this stuff that they were kind of planning to do. But unfortunately, there were rumors, again, that the band was having problems. Despite them bigging up these tours and this celebration of the 20th anniversary of CORE, these things never really happened. Instead, they just kind of went on a couple of tours and all these other things, and it just wasn't really working anymore. Some of these tours were actually canceled because they believed that Scott didn't have the vocal capacity to sing some of these songs anymore. The band did. They thought that Scott couldn't sing them anymore. It started to really unfold by September 27th at a show in Abbotsford, British Columbia. The band was two hours late to their show. And when they came on, they had to cut their set by 30 minutes because they were so late, which upset a lot of fans. And then the following day on the 28th, the band put out a statement saying they had to cancel their shows that day in Alberta due to Scott being put on a 48-hour vocal rest for his voice. Interestingly, though, in December 7th, 2012, Scott said in a radio interview that he was open to performing with the Velvet Revolver again. But upon hearing this, Slash said on another radio interview that he had heard rumors that Scott was fired from Stone Temple Pilots that could be the reason why he was so eager to get with Velvet Revolver again, which 
This was something that Slash dismissed completely, like it was just not going to happen. They were not going to go down that road again. Scott was just really wanting to keep doing music, and so if it wasn't with Stone Temple Pilots, he wanted it with Velvet Revolver. Or if not, he would go on to make another band later on down the road, which I'm going to get to in just a few minutes. So officially, though, on February 27th, 2013, the band officially fired Scott. This was announced as Scott actually left for a tour with his own solo band, so it just came at a really interesting time. Scott gets fired. The band's like, what do we do now? So on May 18th, the following month, Chester Bennington, the singer of Linkin Park, actually came on to fill in the role as singer. They performed with Linkin Park, appearing as special guest for their 21st annual KROQ Weenie Roast, which is a concert that's put on by a California rock radio station. They also performed with Linkin Park on May 19th, 2013 for the Live 105 BFD Festival near San Francisco, where they performed their new song, Out of Time. So with the band plus Chester Bennington, they came out with that song. That same day, a free digital download of the song was released, and this was citing the official Chester is the singer now of our band. Chester actually said in an interview a long time ago before this point that being in Stone Temple Pilots was his lifelong dream, and so that's quite interesting that that just came along for him. As this new lineup, they went on to perform on May 30th, 2013, at the Music Hairs Map Fund Benefit Concert in L.A., so on June 15th of that year, 2013, Stone Temple Pilots announced that they would go on a small tour in the U.S. in September with the band Filter as the opening act. They also released a five-track EP called High Rise on October 8th, 2013 through Penplay LLC, credited as Stone Temple Pilots and Chester Bennington. So at this point in time, Scott was kind of doing his own thing with music. He was focusing on his solo work. He came out with his new band, Scott Wyland and the Wildabouts. But on June 22, 2013, he married his third wife, photographer Jamie Watchell. They apparently had met on the set of the videos for Scott's Christmas album. So now back with Scott, Scott again was in his band, the Wildabouts. And on March 13, 2015, the album Blaster was released. And this was their first and only album with this band, the Wildabouts. But one day before the release of the album on the 30th, their guitarist, Jeremy Brown, died of a drug overdose. And so it's more factors compounding Scott's drug addictions and his horrible state of mind. It was after this time that Scott was reported to have incidences of paranoia as a result of his bipolar disorder. And not only that, but he was going downhill quickly at this point in time. Obviously, the death of one of your best friends and bandmates of a drug overdose is horrible. It's just hard to deal with that. And so he was struggling a lot, not only with the death of Jeremy Brown, but also both of Scott's parents at this time passed away due to cancer. So he lost his brother, Michael. He lost his two parents and he lost one of his friends, Jeremy Brown. And, and he's dealing with all of this stress of having to tour because he doesn't have a lot of money at this point. You know, he's gone through so many divorces and child support payments and this, that, and the other. It's just so difficult. Like, he just doesn't have a lot of money. And so even though he shouldn't have been touring, he should have been chilling, getting clean, you know, 100%. 
even though he claims at this point he had been clean for 13 years, he should not have been touring, and I think we all know that at this point. It becomes pretty evident that he really shouldn't have been doing shows when one of these particular tours that he was doing after they got a new guitarist for the Wildabouts, on April 28th, I believe this was, yes, 2015, while Scott had claimed again, like I said, he'd been sober for 13 years, you know, and he was clean, fans thought otherwise when during this show he was performing the song Vaseline in particular. He was not looking so great. He was slurring his words. He just was not in time with the music at all. Like, he looked out of it. However, a rep for Scott Weiland said that this was due in part to fatigue and I guess a faulty earpiece. He was in trouble. He should not have been performing, and we all know this. People were starting to suspect that something was wrong with Scott. Later that year, on November 9th, Chester made an announcement that he would be amicably splitting with Stone Temple Pilots to focus more on Lincoln Park. And unfortunately, Chester Bennington died on Chris Cornell's birthday, July 20th, 2017. And this came about after a few weeks, yeah, about a few weeks to a month just after Chris Cornell actually died, which I talked about in my Soundgarden episode if you wanted to listen to that. But yeah, just tragedy after tragedy. And then another tragedy, going back to 2015, in December 3rd, Scott was found dead in his tour bus of an accidental drug overdose in Minnesota while he was on tour. He was 48 years old. That's young. It was said that the hours of that morning and the day before that Scott wasn't doing a whole lot, like he was just hanging around, chilling on the tour bus. They didn't hear from him that morning, so they figured, oh, Scott's just sleeping in like he usually does, so they went about their day. But when Scott wasn't arousing from the tour bus, they wanted to check on him, and his wife was like, something's wrong. He's not texting me or calling me. Something isn't right. And so they go in there and they find him. So yeah, this was ruled accidental. This wasn't, you know, a suicide or anything. It was definitely accidental. Another tragic story of an amazing frontman, an amazing person, just with so much talent, gets taken out by drugs, yet again. Stone Temple Pilots released a statement that noted his passing and they thanked him for his time in the band, saying he was gifted beyond words. He really was. He, he, he was in it. And he is alongside the strong vocalists of Chris Cornell and Lane Staley and Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder one of the best rock voices and one of the best frontmen. You see him on stage and he's like doing his little dances and he owns the stage. What I find a little weird to me anyway. So two months after Scott's death, at this time, February of 2016, Stone Temple Pilots puts out an online application for a new singer in the band. And so listen, like, I can't judge what these people want to do with the band at all. However, it is very questionable, is it not? Like two months after your front man dies, you look for a new singer, but that's what they do. So they make this application open to anyone who thought they had what it took to be in the band. So there were two people that people really thought could be the potential. There was one that was a Filipino singer I believe how you say his name is John Boya. And so the other one was X Factor contestant Jeff Gutt. 
So those were the two. But the band didn't really make a big to-do about like any information about if they were finding anybody. It was just kind of speculation at this point. So on July 26, 2017, the band announced a 25th anniversary edition of their album Core. This reissue included a box set, a remastered version of the album, unreleased demos and b-sides, and parts of some live performances from 1993. And then finally that year, on November 14th, the band finally revealed that Jeff Gutt was their chosen singer. So the following day on November 15th, they released their new song Meadow for their upcoming studio album. And on January 31st, 2018, they released another song called Roll Me Under and announced the release of their seventh studio album, which was their second self-titled album in their catalog. This was another album called Stone Temple Pilots. You could have maybe chosen a different name so it didn't get confused with the other Stone Temple Pilots album, but anyway, it was released on May 16th, 2018. Also in 2018, they finished the year off with a tour alongside Bush and the Cult. And so their eighth studio album, oh, this is going to be hard for me, Perdita, Perdita, yeah, I think that's how you say that, was released on February 7th, 2020, which was largely an acoustic record. And this was mainly recorded actually using vintage instruments, which that sounds really interesting. I'll definitely have to listen to that one. And so what I thought was really, really, really cool as well is Scott's son, Noah, he went on to be in a band called Suspect 208. I believe they're still around and I believe they're still making music. I, I haven't really seen anything. But so not only has his son been in this band, but there are two other members in this band that actually are the sons of rock stars. And again, you're going to have to forgive me on this pronunciation. I'm not that good with pronunciations. And so the son of Robert Truillo, Truillo, oh my God, you guys, I'm so sorry. He's from Metallica. His son Ty is in this band too. And Slash's son London Hudson is also in this band. Yeah, and there you have it, everyone. That is Stone Temple Pilots all wrapped up for you. Oh man, there's there's a lot of information that I found extremely interesting to research, especially the Velvet Revolver period. That to me was really fascinating how that all came together. Yeah, I don't really know what else there really is to say about about the rest of this. It's it's quite an interesting story how the whole thing comes together and Scott's life being so tragic and up and down, highs and lows and dying the way he did. It's sad, but what we can do is remember him and remember these other people that I mentioned in my previous episodes. You know, these guys that have passed away as well. We can honor them. We can respect their legacy. We can treat them as human beings and not for their drug addictions or their demons and remember them for the good things about them. And so I think I'll just leave it at that, guys. That kind of wraps up my grunge tapes. And who knows, maybe at some point in the future, I'll go back and film more bonus episodes. Who knows? But at this point in time, that's kind of all she wrote for the Grunge series. Oh, I'm so excited to be moving on to future bands and talking about other genres. It's just so exciting. I had to start with Grunge first and foremost. It holds such a dear place in my heart. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this series. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys very much for the support. Have an awesome day, and I'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye, guys.